Hello and welcome to the Forgotten Season podcast. I am your host, George Dunn. This is a short mini-series where we will hopefully fill out, fill some of that void left by the lack of sport at the moment. Across the series, I'll be interviewing people who have worked in football and talking to them specifically about the leagues they work closely on. We hope to pick up some of the lesser told stories of the season that may be lost in the enormity of the situation we are currently facing. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for tuning in. Time to introduce our first guest. And joining us for the first episode, we have Premier League analyst for Smart Odds, Chris Dobar. Thanks for coming on, Chris. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm alright, mate. You know, strange times we live in, but it's not, uh, you know, coping and things. Oh, well, How are you? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Thanks for coming on. Um, just wanted to give a brief introduction to you, mate, so we can get uh, give the listeners an idea of who you are. Um, you're an analyst at Smart Odds, and uh, how long have you been working in football, and what does your job entail? So I started working as a watcher in 2011. Um, now I'm Premier League analyst, which means that me and my partner on the Premier League have to write a preview and review for every game that a Premier League team plays, whether it's a pre-season friendly or, you know, a Champions League game, a league game. Uh, that's the bulk of what we do. So you're on top of the Premier League day to day. You follow it all the time. That's, that's your life. Yeah, basically. Yeah, all those. A lot less of it to do now, just dates of when it's going to come back and things. And uh, how do you find being a Premier League analyst and maybe other leagues? Do you find yourself, everyone seems to be an expert in the Premier League, right? Yeah, so I did um, MLS before doing put the Prem and like, the information is so much better now. But it's the it's like wading through the information, like obviously not all info is good. There's lots of people on Twitter who think they're an expert, lots of people who leak fake team news, things like that. Yeah, I suppose it's and covered by a lot more people, a lot more fake news out there. Yeah, that and just like everyone's got an opinion on it and you just kind of got to be confident that you're doing the right thing, that you're watching the most games. So when we were looking into doing this podcast together, I sort of asked you if there were anything that you felt like was getting forgotten throughout the season or any underlying themes that particularly struck you uh, during this year in the Premier League. And um, you highlighted uh, British managers and sort of young, youthful British managers playing a sort of different style of football than you might have expected or traditionally has they've been pigeonholed into or everyone sort of relates England managers to the classic 4-4-2, Sven Goran Eriksson, even a movie made about it with Mike Bassett. Um, I was just sort of wondering, what do you think that style and what do you think the style has changed from and to in the past few years? And are there any managers that particularly represent that change in style for you? Well, I think the main thing is that a few years ago that you had the, you had Mark Hughes, Tony Pulis, Neil Warnock, you know, all those guys kind of coming and going and Malin Pardew had all managed the same clubs, West Brom, Palace, um, you know, a few others. And I think what's interesting now is that you've got actually quite a lot of British managers, but they're playing a lot more progressive football. They're not all just kind of like defensive, direct football, trying to play on knockdowns. It's a lot more you've got Potter at Brighton playing, like trying to, everything's trying to pass out the back. Everything's out the back. He never really goes long. Wilder's playing quite a unique style of football at Sheffield United with his overlap with fullbacks. Even Lampard at Chelsea's doing quite a 
high press, more aggressive style. Um, but you've still got a bit more the traditional managers in Dyche and Hodgson who are very, and Bruce, who are much more like, okay, we'll move ball from the back, we'll make sure we're solid first and then try and go through the team. Where do you think this sort of change in style has come from? You know, do you think the effect of Pep Guardiola coming in and Jurgen Klopp into the Premier League has changed the the style, or do you think it's maybe something to do with a sort of more general change across the whole of Europe? Yeah, I think part of it is is you know England playing catch up to European football and how they've been doing it over there. I think there's lots of reasons from like foreign ownerships trying to bring more consensus style of structure of teams, so. Pochettino was a coach, for example, rather than a manager and saying like Hassan Hotel and a few others. And I think that kind of in, instead of having these old types like Allardyce and Fergie, who are very much, we run the club from top to bottom with the managers, we choose the transfers, we do everything like that. Now you have people who are asked to coach and do nothing else. And I think that has inspired people to have a certain, like a more defined way of playing. Also, small things like the football pitches are much better quality than they were even 15 years ago. So there are no excuses, really. Interesting. Do you, and do you think uh, do you think this sort of like previous old style of manager, sort of a lot of, so you had Eddie Howe sort of felt like a bit of an outlier about six years ago or three years ago even, and was sort of being touted for this top six top six jobs simply because he was uh, English manager playing a sort of Free, more free-flowing style of football, and maybe hadn't warranted, uh, you know, doing enough with Bournemouth to suggest that he actually warranted his top six job. Do you think some of these managers coming through now have the pedigree to to crack on and move on and maybe get one of those top six jobs? Uh, yeah, well, you know, you like to think so, wouldn't you? I think. What Potter did at Ostersunds and impressive at Swansea and the first half of the season at Brighton, you'd think that he could maybe push on. I think the owner, Tony Bloom, seems to think so. He gave him a six-year contract to try and protect himself there. Uh, Wild is the one that interests me the most. I think if you got him in charge of, you know, say like Chelsea's team that's full of like young, hungry footballers willing to really work for him, then that would be, uh, Fascinating because he's done such a good job overachieving with players who have come with him throughout the leagues. So what he could do is with uh, like elite level players would be really interesting if given the opportunity. Yeah, and uh, so we're going to talk about Wilder a bit later on, but just sort of coming back to a couple of sort of the old style managers. Do you think? You know, maybe the Deitches and the Pulises and the Hodgson still have a place in the league. Can they compete with the Wilders, the Rogers, the Frank Lampards now? And do they still have a certain way of working that can be effective? Uh, yeah, absolutely. What well, I definitely Deitch and Hodgson have both been like very successful this season. I think Deitch is one of three managers who got Manager of the Month this season. Burnley have been excellent for the last few months. I would say that Deitch is maybe a bit more progressive than Pulis, who's very much you know, four centre-backs at full-back. You know, even at full-back in the central midfield, very much looking to dominate aerially and part of the bus. Whereas, whilst Daesh does build or start from the back, he does, doesn't does just look to defend and he will kind of go a bit more and try and score a second or third. 
not obviously not against the big sides, but you know, at home, if they're chasing a bit, I wouldn't say he's as negative as Pulis. Would you say it's more sort of like a style similarity than a, a defense, a, their sort of defensive and attack sort of similarities in the sense that Deitch, although plays a very sort of solid 4-4-2 often at the time, does look to get the ball forward to Wood, Barnes, you know, play that direct style, but in an aggressive way, get balls in the box, whereas Pulis is very much defensive-minded. Yeah, and it's more that Pulis would be so focused on set pieces that he'd be playing uh, centre-backs at full-back, so he's like, with a solitary aim, less of the looking for the box. any extra height advantage when the ball yeah, comes in. Whereas, whereas um, Dynastry, he's got him Taylor and more so when he plays louder than Bardsley, but the fullbacks are willing to get forward and put crosses in, and they're very much fullbacks rather than centre backs playing playing at fullback. Right, so uh, having talked about some British managers and having discussed it over the firm when we were preparing for the podcast. I knew you'd be keen to discuss um, a couple in particular. You have uh, talked already about Chris Wilder and what he's doing at Sheffield United. Um, but you yourself at work and to your colleagues were quite bullshy. Some would even say arrogant about the chances of Leicester making the top four this season. Um, and I was just sort of interesting what, what gave you that impression pre-season? What about their team shaped up in a good way for you to, uh, in a way for you that you thought they could make a push? And, you know, what were the little bits that came together that convinced you that they could do it and over other previous top six sides and Tottenham and Arsenal, who I think a lot of other people assumed would be competing for it? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, there are the issues with, with the other sides of the top six. I wasn't sure about United, Chelsea, or Arsenal. They didn't look like very, in um, very good positions coming into the start of the season. Also, like, Brendan Rodgers is a good manager. He did well at Celtic. He was good at Liverpool. I don't, I feel like he maybe wasn't given the credit he deserved. And then, um, the squad is built up. They're very effective. They got, in Ricardo, they've got one of the best right backs in the league. Evans and Schmeichel. I didn't know much about Sienchi at the start of the season, but Evans and Schmeichel are really dependable, very solid. You know, Madison's excellent set pieces, creative. And then Bardi's just, he's just a nuisance, isn't he? When he gets on form, he hits a purple patch, he's just relentless. And I just thought they had the makings of a really good size. So, uh, with a good manager who could, you know, surprise a lot of people. So, I mean, so obviously the lots of things that, you know, Leicester, you know, impressed you. You mentioned Brendan Rodgers as a manager that had done well previously at Celtic, obviously left in controversial circumstances just before that treble, treble. Yeah. And uh, you know done well at Liverpool previously. Do you think he was sort of slightly affected by some maybe some silly things he said in the press, maybe having a... a a slight tendency to say something that was a media headline that made him look a little bit silly. I mean, I, I think back to sort of him talking about Joe Allen as the Welsh Xavi, and he did have this sort of personality in this in the media of saying a few gaffes here and then, and do you think that affected people's opinion of him as a manager? Definitely. I think, I think the way he was portrayed in the media, like, 
definitely made an impact on how people thought of him as a coach. You know, he was he was repeatedly calling performances that were unacceptable, outstanding, and he was known as a bit of a quiet machine. Came across as a bit of a David Brent figure. And that show being Liverpool, he was trying to come into a new club and Liverpool were very much focused on improving their PR after what happened 12 months before that. And he did suffer in the media as a result. And I think people kind of forgot about his talent when he went to Celtic because people thought, well, Celtic, isn't it? They always win. But they don't win in the way that he won. And Leicester were, I thought Leicester were the beneficiaries of that. Completely. And he's definitely set a new precedent whilst he was Celtic. And do you think he's sort of maybe learned a few of those lessons? To me, he comes across as a bit more understated now, sort of almost like Leicester's season. It's been a bit understated. They sort of mirrored each other and, you know, no one's really talking about them as much anymore, even though they're in third and close to getting the Champions League for only the second time in, in their history. Yeah, I think the other thing with Leicester is it's a bit tricky because they're never going to do what they... And they're going to achieve what they achieved under Ranieri. So maybe this story doesn't, you know, it's, it's never going to compete. And also you've got Liverpool doing what they're doing. So the, the kind of the natural focus is towards that. But I mean, that's quite good for Leicester. I mean, there's no pressure on them, you know, every, all the pressures on, you know, Man United and Arsenal and Tottenham, Chelsea, all the sides trying to chase them to land in the top four that keep falling. Yeah, and I suppose, do you think, sort of thinking about pressure off, they also don't have the pressure of Europe this this season, whilst a lot of those other clubs going for it, uh, you know, playing Thursday, Sunday or Wednesday, Saturday. And do you think that's affected the, the race for the top four and has worked in Leicester's favour? Yeah, I think it's been a contributing factor for Leicester. That Rogers' season at Liverpool, when they, you know, were so close to winning the league then, was when uh, Liverpool didn't have any... European competition to think of so they did have that three week and they did have that week of recovery and Leicester they haven't until recently they haven't had a huge amount of injuries Athedi and Vardy and then Ricardo got injured but up until then they were doing pretty well and keeping a consistent side you know their 11 were pretty easy to name every week they rarely had any troubles yeah it's interesting you sort of talk about the consistent side I mean if, if you're thinking about the sort of best midfields in the Premier League I think that's been a big point for me for Leicester is that they really do have a very high quality midfield and it just looks well balanced. Would you uh, agree with that? And what was you, your be your assessment be of Leicester's midfield? Yeah, I think the central three are very good and Didi's among the best holding midfielders around in the Premier League. Like he could really play for an elite level club. I think he's still young. I think today I saw that they, you know, that one of the newspapers giving him their young player of the year. I just can't believe he's still um, applicable for that. And obviously, you know, we know the quality of Madison and his set pieces and his deliveries are excellent. Tielemans has gone off the boil a bit towards, you know, the last few months and Pratt has taken his place, but, you know, creative, industrious, good on the board, got an eye for goal. It's very nicely balanced. Yeah, I mean, they have been doing superbly this season. And would there be any other factors in terms of defence or, you know, you've mentioned Vardy, but any other key players that you might sort of think that have made a bit of a difference for them? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of Ricardo. You know, the right back, he's uh, he's excellent. I think, again, along with Ndidi, he's right up there as 
got the potential to play for one, you know, Champions League last eight sides, you know, he's really good. It's a shame he's done his ACL. But other than Alexander Arnold, he's been the best right back in the country for the last two years for me, Ricardo. So you, you know, we talk, talked about Leicester and I know you mentioned them earlier in Sheffield United and you wanted to talk, to talk about them again. I mean, my sort of one of my questions linking to that sort of Brendan Rogers having a previous personality or a previous persona that's maybe slightly affected people's opinion of him. Do you think maybe some previous managers like Neil Warnock and, you know, Sam Allardyce, this sort of no-nonsense talking has maybe affected people's opinions of Chris Wilder's football when he came into the league? is very no-nonsense talking, but those who followed him and followed the style of football that he played in League One and then in the Championship, it is very different, it's very unique, and it actually is very inventive compared to maybe other no-nonsense managers that we've had in the past. And do you think that tarnishes him with a certain brush? I think, yeah, I think Wilder, the way he speaks, he's a bit of a, a bit of a proper football man, you know. Talks a lot about heart and desire and, you know, all those things, all the kind of like cliches that, you know, old school British managers would refer to. But then on the training ground, he does things that are completely different. I find Wilder like a really interesting character, having come up through, um, you know, Halifax, Oxford, Northampton, Sheffield United, like he's never, he's never found someone or he's never found his limit. Like he's not, he's, Everywhere he's been, he's, you know, he's overperformed. He's got, he's got in Sheffield United's case, a big team out of League One and then out of the Championship. But in Oxford United's case, they were stuck in the conference for years until he went there. And he's done it. He's been, uh, I think he's been excellent this season. What the way they play football is really, in, is really interesting. Like, it's not, a lot is made of the overlapping centre backs. But it's not just about that, it's the fluidity of the team and the movement. You know, often you'll find McGordrick dropping into midfield with Fleck running beyond him and O'Connell wide left and then the Stevens covering for him. It's just, um, yeah, I just find it, it's, it's, they're really good to watch. I mean, it's a, I suppose it's interesting when you start talking about some of the, the players there in the team in that system that you wouldn't necessarily call them household names. And one of the things that, things that Sheffield United seem to have got right and Chris Wilder seems to have found a way uh-huh. is getting something out of players that necessarily haven't necessarily done it at that level before. Do you think that's to do with his coaching ability? Do you think that may be partly to do with the sort of scouting system they have there? I'd say it's, it's yeah, it's, I'd lay most, most of the credit of the coaching, coaching, coaching system and team there. Um, they haven't really signed anyone that's, that's actually the most interesting aspect of Sheffield United for me is the, what, what happens next. Now they've, they've got Saudi investment, they've got a bit of money, they've signed, signed, signed a bird. So it'll be, I would say it'll be interesting to see how he can kind of adapt his coaching or if he can adapt these players to play his style of football, you know, with the, on, on, after signing them for big money and things and kind of continuing with his progress. But sorry, to get back onto the point, I'd say more, more coaching than the scouting system. Would be my inclination, and you know, interesting. You started talking about sort of some of their ambitions there. You know, with this new investment, with the a lot of people talk are talking about them competing for the Champions League this year, especially if City uh, end up not playing it next mm. year, and that fifth spot is available. I mean, we all obviously don't know what's going to happen with the season at the moment. But do you think looking forward to future seasons, it's looking bright for Sheffield United, right? Or am I missing something? 
yeah, I mean, you never know how much these people want to invest and how much, you know, FFP's going to hamper them. Um, but there does seem, you know, reason about, there does seem reason to be optimistic about their future. That said, you know, you've got the big six and the Wolves who have got them, you know, investing heavily. Leicester continuing to uh, invest well. So I'm not sure how easy it's going to be to break into the top four. So, you know, there's only four Champions League spaces. I don't like, there might be years where they finish 10th and there might be years where they push the top four. Like, I don't think, I think for now, consolidation of the Premier League, be a top 10 side and then try and get their funds up to try and compete properly would be, uh, which is a quite a reasonable assessment of where their ambitions should lie. And do you think sort of maybe having talked about the quality of Chris Wilder and the fact that he's sort of proven himself at every level he's been asked to from Conference League Two, League One, uh, Championship, and now the Premier League exceeding expectations. I mean, it's surely it's a real fear that someone's going to come after him. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a Sheffield United fan, so that'll probably keep him at the club. Um, also, the, the average age of Sheffield United's first team squad I saw earlier was is twenty eight. So. You know, he's going to have to get some young blood in there soon because that's not going to be able to last. And then there's always a the question of, you know, people have always been saying, what if Sheffield United get found out? But maybe you have to come up with another system, you know, to stop that. He didn't play overlapping centre-backs in Northampton or Oxford, so he could, you know, I fully believe that he could do that. So, mate, um, thanks for that uh, very much great in-detail look at Sheffield United. Um, here at the Forgotten Season podcast, we're also looking for some older memories, a bit of nostalgia, something that maybe you've covered uh, in the past when you're doing Premier League or MLS. And I put it to you when I asked you to come onto the podcast, if there was any particular season from when you uh, or anyone, a particular player, that surprised you when you were doing uh, your analysis. Uh, just wondering, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say he surprised me, but I remember doing my first season of analysis, and it was um, Thierry. When I was doing MLS, it was Thierry Henry's final season, and he was just—he was like—he was old. He can play in every game, and he, you know, he can tell his legs weren't quite what they were, but his ability on the ball and his brain was so it was just so much better than everybody else. And he was excellent for that season. I think he um he was probably shaking well he would have he was Red Bull's best player for me that season despite Bradley Wright Phillips getting like twenty seven goals. And that kind of season he also exploded Wright Phillips into being one of the best strikers in MLS history now. But before that one I don't think he'd scored that many goals. But that year he got thirty one in all comps and it was just quite interesting to watch these to watch Henri just feeding the ball and giving the ball and all, you know, give the striker confidence and, yeah, just, just pull things out of the bag that not many other players in that league could do. And it was such a, like, nice, it, I felt like it was quite a nice way for me to, because he was obviously such a big part of my football in childhood, you know, he's the best player in the, probably the best player in Premier League history and just to see his final year in MLS was like quite, quite a, just such a nice swan song. I mean, Bradley Wright Phillips has almost become a bit of a, a cult hero in MLS now. I mean, he's 
career in, in English football wasn't all that, but when he went to the MLS, he really lit it up. And, you know, despite some criticism of the quality of MLS, he really showed a level that he didn't even show in League One or League Two. He really lit it up. And do you think a big part of that was down to just Henri's form that season and giving him confidence? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think Henri said at the time, this is good. He was, they were asked after a game, well, oh, what do you think about Flicks is scoring so many goals? And he goes, oh, well, you know, the amount I'm putting on for him, he should score more than he's scoring. <laughs> and it wasn't just, uh, it was, it wasn't just like, it's obviously quite an arrogant thing to say, but it's also, you know, trying to strive to write Phillips Lee. And just because you scored a load of goals this season, doesn't mean he's done anything. Like, come on, you need to keep going, you need to keep pushing, you need to always want more. And uh, yeah, I think that really, um, told to write Phillips. So after that, I think they came VP, following season, they got rid of, like they lost Henri, they got rid of the manager and they kind of thought they were going to be, everybody thought they were going to fall off a cliff, but he really took hold of that side with Sasha Kleisen and continued to score goals. I think now he's a bit, he's a bit old now, he's at LAFC, but he really was an, like the best goal scorer in MLS when I was, I did the league. Well, cheers, Cackley, and thanks for coming on. You've been a, a great first guest, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Cheers, mate. Thanks. So do I. Thanks. Take care. Take All care. the best. You made it to the end of the podcast. Massively grateful to you all who have listened. Next week, we've got a La Liga special. Have a great week. Stay safe, and see you then.